people have annually celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ. And we call this celebration, as all of you know, Christmas today. Well, historically, God's people have made this a four-week celebration leading up to the actual day of Christmas called Advent, which means arrival, celebrating the Advent or the arrival of Christ. During the four weeks of Advent, anticipation builds for Christmas Day is how we're supposed to celebrate Advent. That for those four weeks of Advent, anticipation is building for Christmas Day, which mimics the centuries during which anticipation built for Christ. For the first advent, for the first arrival of Christ. Remember that God had promised that one day a savior would come to the very first human beings. Adam and Eve. And then over and over and over again throughout history to his people. God promised that a savior, a rescuer, a deliverer. Would come so anticipation built for millenniums for that very first Christmas day. So our annual tradition here is that the first four December's uh, Sundays of December are devoted to celebrating Advent. And we do that through four themes, hope and love and joy and peace. So we would encourage you. In addition to your Christmas Day celebration, in addition to your Christmas Day traditions, we would encourage you to intentionally, if you don't already, pull your celebration back, all the way back, into the first week of December. Your personal tradition celebration, your family traditions and celebration all the way back to this first week as we anticipate together Christmas Day. So to help with that, I know Tom mentioned this in the beginning, but I think a lot of you came after he made those first announcements. So just to to re-say it, we've got a little resource here that's available to you. And this is to help you, if you'd like, celebrate Advent this year. Uh, The cover of this booklet is the same as a booklet that we've put out before, but everything inside is completely different. So if you were thinking you already have this booklet, you actually don't. The cover is the same, but everything inside is totally redone. So here's what is in that booklet. There are four devotions. There are four devotions that that go along with our four themes that we're going to be looking at here on Sunday mornings. One for each week of Advent, and those four devotions include scriptures to read, uh, some thoughts to consider, and a Christmas song to sing. And then at the end, you'll find some daily readings if you want scripture that deals with the Advent of Christ to read every single day between now and Christmas Day. There's some daily readings, a plan that you can follow. Uh, There's also a story of the real Santa Claus That's St. Nicholas that you'll have in here. There's some Christmas trivia. And then there's 
recommended resources in the very back. So grab one of those. If you don't have one and you'd like one, make sure you grab one of those on your way out. They're, they're two bucks each. You can drop that in the offering box back in the corner here, or you can give it to the bookstore attendant as well. That booklet is available on our website in PDF form. So if you want to uh, go to our website under resources and then under advent, you can also find the booklet as well as some coloring pages for little kids. So this morning to kick us off, our advent theme as it has been for the last five years or so is hope. And our text as you know, is Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, which has traditionally not been a go-to passage <laughs> on hope. So some of you might have even been surprised and wondered why we're reading a genealogy today. It, it is a genealogical history of Jesus. We are going to learn about his family tree. And yet, that is exactly the way that Matthew chose to begin his telling of the Christmas story. So Lord willing, through this sermon, uh, we'll see, number one, the significance of this genealogy. And then number two, the hope in this genealogy. Let's look for the significance of this genealogy. Why did Matthew begin his telling of the Christmas story with a genealogy? And then let's see, in accordance with our theme, is there hope to be found in this genealogy? There is. But before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son to be born, a baby, to grow up and become a man who would be the one and only God-man who would die for his people. God, this entire miracle of our salvation, we know, begins with Christmas. It begins with the incarnation, God coming in the flesh. So God, would you make us good Advent celebrators this month? That we would be mindful of you and your great gift to us? That we would be the most cheerful, that we would be the most joyful, celebratory people on the planet this month. Because our celebration is not rooted in sentiment. Our celebration is not rooted in worldly tradition. Our celebration is rooted in the fact that the Christmas story is true. So bless our time this morning, especially now, the preaching of your word. Use it for our good and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to 
Matthew chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles under the seat in front of you, you'll find our text on page 523. Let's think first, I said we would, about the significance of this genealogy. Everybody, or most people, everybody loves a good story. I love a good story. You love a good story. We may disagree on what a good story is or isn't. But I think for most people that a story is good, whether they realize it or not, whether they articulate it or not, if that story satisfies some deep longing or desire. That's what makes a good story. And if if it doesn't scratch that itch, if it doesn't satisfy that deep longing or desire, then it's sort of useless to us. But it's a good story if it can reach us on a deep heart level. So let me explain. With every human being, every single human being, there are deep desires that have been put there by God to be satisfied by Him. Let me say that again. In every human being, you, me, all of us, there are deep desires, deep longings, and they have been put there by God. We have been created in the image of God. Ecclesiastes said he has put eternity in our hearts. These deepest desires and longings have been put in you and me by the one who made us. And he put those desires in us to be satisfied by him. So we have these deep longings, we have these deep desires, everyone and everyone is trying to have those desires met. Is trying to be content, trying to be fulfilled, trying to be satisfied, trying to find purpose, trying to find meaning. But it can only be found in God. Because we've been made, we've been built, we've been designed to be satisfied in Him alone. They are common desires which ultimately go unfulfilled apart from God. And anywhere you go in the world today, Anywhere you go throughout history, these desires are in human beings. Deep desires. Desires to escape suffering and death. Desires to be loved unconditionally. Desires to triumph over evil. Desires to love without fear. Desires to see the helpless helped. To see the defenseless defended. Desires for justice. Desires to worship. To give ourselves for something greater. To know the nature of the power That is beyond and behind the stars. Everyone. 
everywhere, without exception, has these deep desires. Desires to find purpose and meaning and fulfillment in this life. I could go on and on about these common deep desires we all have. And we want these things. We want these things so badly that virtually every good story we tell is about one or more of these deep desires being satisfied. From fairy tales to big budget movies to epic novels. The storyline always, if it's good and if it reaches us, it satisfies one of these deep desires that we have. Tim Keller has said, Death should not be the end. We should not lose our loved ones. Evil should not triumph. Our hearts sense that even though the stories themselves aren't true, the underlying realities behind the stories are somehow true or ought to be. And so we love a good story. We love a good story where we can be taken out For hours where we can be taken out of our story. Where we can be taken out of our little world or even out of this world. We love stories that take us out where evil is conquered. Where the underdog wins. Where the guy gets the girl. Where the dragon is Slayed. So no wonder the Christmas story has been loved and cherished by so many. No wonder. It's a great story. The Christmas story is a great story. Think about it. The Christmas story is a story about someone, the hero about someone coming to our world from another world to save us from a dragon, as Satan is called in Revelation, that threatens to kill all of us forever. That's a great story. That someone comes from out of this world and breaks into our world to save us from a dragon that threatens to kill all of us forever. That is the Christmas story. And how does this hero come into our world as a baby? As a baby born to a poor young woman. Who has been married less than nine months. What a story. It's a great story. However. There is a significant difference. Between this story. And all other stories like it. The Christmas story. Is true. It is actually. True. Someone came from another world. Into our world. 
to kill a dragon. And he was born as a baby to a poor young woman and then adopted by her husband. This is a true story. It's no fairy tale. It is the story to which all other stories point. It is the story of the incarnation, God coming to earth as a man. Now, we're getting closer to understanding the significance of this genealogy. We're, we're getting closer to getting that. If you are a writer in the first century, is what Matthew was. Matthew was a writer in the first century, and he was one of four writers that wrote the story of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, if you are a writer in the first century, and you are going to tell a true story that will be, you know, dismissed by many as a mere legend, how do you begin? That's a very good question to ask. If you're a writer in the first century and you're going to write a true story, but you know that most people are going to dismiss it as a fairy tale, how will you begin? Well, you don't begin with once upon a time. Which is why Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, none of them begin with once upon a time. None of them begin with in a galaxy far, far away. Because you know, however good the story is, it's baloney at the end of the day. So you don't start the story that way. If you're Matthew, and you're going to tell a true story that you know will sound too good to be true and will be doubted by everyone, you begin with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Here's what he's doing. Matthew establishes on the very first page of his book that this is not fiction. This is a true story. This is not fiction, Matthew is saying. This is history. The significance then of this genealogy is that it roots the Christmas story in history. The genealogy says, the story you're about to hear is true. This really happened. He was really born. And here is who his dad was. And his dad's dad. And his dad's dad. And let's trace it all the way back, generation after generation after generation, this is not some made-up character. This is Jesus, the promised rescuer. And so Matthew begins with a genealogy. That's the significance. What about hope? This is our theme this morning. What about the hope in this genealogy? I think it'd be good for us to begin by making sure we understand hope in the Bible. Because hope in the Bible, and the way the word hope is used in the Bible, 
is not typically how we use the word hope. It's very different. In the West, hope refers to a desire in our hearts regarding an uncertain future. Right? Hope. It's a desire in our hearts regarding a future that is uncertain. Hope regards what we would like to happen in the future, but we are not sure it will come to pass. So this is how we use it. I hope I get accepted into that college. It's an uncertain future, but I hope it happens. I hope the baby sleeps through the night. I hope the Ohio State University makes the college football playoff. I'm speaking on behalf of my son Brady right now, who is so hopeful. And I guess we'll find out at noon today. In the Bible, it's different. In the Bible, hope refers to a desire in our hearts regarding a certain future. That's dramatically different opposite it's a desire in your heart regarding a certain future so it's not hoping for it's hoping in and so a christian says things like i hope in christ or my hope is in heaven In Hebrews 6.19, Paul, or whoever wrote Hebrews, he described hope as, quote, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That's biblical hope. A sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. Whatever it is that your soul is anchored in, that is immovable and will keep you and keep you and keep you. That is your hope. And so again, we say things like, my hope is Christ. My hope is in heaven. Christian, are you going to heaven? Here is the wrong answer. I hope so. That is the wrong answer. And you're using the word hope all wrong. And that kind of hope does not exist in your Bible. Christian, are you going to heaven? The correct answer is yes. Because my hope is in Christ. The answer is, yes, my hope is in Christ. So that's Christian hope. We're talking about hope. That's what it is. A desire in our hearts regarding a certain future. And believe it or not, we're going to find reason for that kind of hope right here in this genealogy. And we will find it by thinking about two things. uh, People and the promise. That's what we're going to look at in this genealogy. We're going to search and think about the people in this genealogy that will bring hope. 
And we're going to look at the genealogy and think about the promise that's going to bring hope. So let's turn our attention from the significance of this genealogy to hope in this genealogy. And let's begin with the people. Look with me at Matthew 1. Let's begin with the people we find in here. And let's agree on something before we start. Let's agree that our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Psalm 115.3. Let's agree before we read this list of people that our God is sovereign. In other words, this family tree went according to plans. You need to know that before you start digging into these names. This family tree went according to plans. No one is in the family tree of Jesus or any family tree by accident. That's one of the things it means when Christians say that God is exhaustively sovereign. He is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And no one's beating him or winning and he's not abdicating and he's not neglecting sovereignty or giving it up. No, he's just sovereign. It's one of the things it means to be God. So it's not as if God is like reading this account of Matthew. Right, Matthew writes it. And then God is looking at this genealogy of Jesus and saying, good night, how did she get in there? (laughs) This is not, this is not good. We need some white out. We need, we need the word processor, backspace, backspace, backspace. In Matthew's day, a, a genealogy was way more significant than It might be to us today. A genealogy was it was more than an interesting piece of family history. It was more like what we would call a resume. A genealogy was very important in that culture. More important than your experience and your accomplishments. These are things that you'd put in a resume, right? Most of you wouldn't put anybody that you're related to. You wouldn't want them to know that, but... In this day, it wasn't about your experience and your accomplishments. It was the people you were connected to that brought clout. It was especially the family that you were a part of. It was your pedigree. In fact, historians tell us that Herod the Great apparently purged names from his genealogy to make himself look better. Herod the Great, who you could read about in the next chapter, Matthew 2, remember, who was king in Jerusalem and who had all the children murdered because he had heard that one of them would be a king. That Herod. He understood the importance of a genealogy and even purged names from his genealogy to make himself look better. This is actually a very popular thing. Gaining popularity today where people are interested in finding out their genealogy. I don't know a lot about it. There's like these websites, Ancestry, and I guess you can pay money and and they will, you can find out who you are related to. And I sort of have, I I vary in my emotions about that from curiosity to fear. (laughs) My wife and I have talked about that. I've said, you know, I don't, 
I really don't have any desire to know who it is that I'm related to generations back. Everybody assumes that you're going to find out good things. <laughs> I did find out, my, my, uh, one of my brothers uh, has done this and found out that on my mother's side, we, we invented the cracker. <laughs> you're welcome. That's me. My family wasn't around, you'd have no crackers. Nothing to, nothing to, no little, you know, to put on your soup, no, no gold fishies, none of that. So I feel like I owe you a, a welcome. You're welcome. So, <laughs> Matthew does not do that. Matthew does not do that. He doesn't, he doesn't pull a hair of the great. He doesn't, he doesn't omit unsavory names from this genealogical history of Jesus. In fact, you're going to see surprising people show up in, think of it this way, in the lineage of God in the flesh. That's what we have here, the lineage of God in the flesh. So let me just run through these pretty quickly. Let me, let me point out a bunch of surprises, again, in a genealogy of that day. Five women are mentioned. Five women are mentioned in this genealogy. That is surprising. That is very unusual because typically women were not listed in genealogies in ancient patriarchal times. The women were not even mentioned. Only the men were mentioned. But there's five of them mentioned in this genealogy. Tamar in verse 3. Rahab and Ruth in verse 5. Bathsheba is identified, though she's not said by name. We'll get to that in verse 6. And then, of course, Mary in verse 16. And most of those women, three of them, they were Gentiles. They were not Jews. They were outsiders from the Jewish people. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, they were Canaanites and Moabites who would not even have been allowed in the Jewish tabernacle. They were seen as unclean. Rahab, verse 5, remember she was a prostitute. She was a prostitute who helped the Israelites conquer Jericho. Tamar is mentioned in verse 3. You could read about her in Genesis chapter 38. She wanted children. Her husband died. No one came along. She tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her so that she could have a child. And she's mentioned by name in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 10. Manasseh. Manasseh is mentioned in verse 10. He was probably the most wicked king Judah ever had. And he's in the genealogy. Don't forget Jacob. He's in verse 2. Jacob, who of course was a godly man, who of course was a hero of our faith, but he had a wife that he loved named Rachel. And he had a wife that he didn't love named Leah. It's actually a sad story. Jesus came from Leah's line. 
the one who was unloved, the one who was not accepted. We have Jacob here. King David is mentioned. We're not surprised, I don't think, to find King David in the genealogy. He was a great man. He was a godly man. We are told that he was a man after God's own heart. But read with me how he is mentioned. Verse 6 and 7. Look at Matthew 1, 6 and 7. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. What a strange thing to say in Matthew's genealogy. Who was the wife of Uriah? Bathsheba. But he doesn't say, he's tracing this down, David and then Solomon. And Solomon's mother was Bathsheba. He says, no, she, she was the wife of Uriah. Now that, of course, is meant to bring to mind one of the saddest, most tragic stories in the entire Old Testament. It is the story of David's utter moral failure. Who used his power wickedly. Who saw a woman that he desired to have. But she was not his wife and belonged to another man. But he used his power to have her. And she conceived a child. And so he sent for her husband, Uriah, who was fighting for David's kingdom. And brought Uriah home and tried to get Uriah to spend the night with his wife so that David's sin would be covered up. And Uriah refused to enjoy the pleasures of marriage while his countrymen were fighting on the front lines. So he just slept on the ground. So David sent him back with a message that said, put him on the front line. And when the enemy attacks, everybody draw back and leave him for dead. He ordered his execution. And then apparently, as you read the story, didn't feel guilt or conviction for like months after that until he was confronted by a man named Nathan. And Matthew brings that up in the genealogy. As he's rooting Jesus and the story he's about to tell in history. He brings to our mind Uriah. So that we would remember that story. So this is just a sampling and we could go on. And talk about the other people who are in this genealogy. And believe it or not, the people in this genealogy bring us hope. Let me explain how that works. The people that are listed in this genealogy bring us hope because we are no different. We're all represented here. We're all represented here. We're not the good guys. We're not the good gals. That's not how this works. The world isn't filled with 
filled with good people and bad people, and God saves the good people. The world is filled with bad people. And I'm bad, and you're bad. For all, that includes you and me, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For no one is righteous, Romans 3, 10. No, not even one. No one seeks sincerely after God. No one. The heart of every man is deceitful. It's wicked. And it is beyond cure. No one can understand it. The evil that we do, Mark 7, 21, comes from within, out of our hearts. We're bad people, but there's a good God. And there is a good king. And his name is Jesus. And he came to save his people. So it is comforting to read a genealogy like this and find people that you may not want to identify with, but you can identify with. The Son of Man, it is very clear, for example, reading through this genealogy, that the Son of Man came from a very dysfunctional family. He came from a dysfunctional family. That word gets thrown around a lot these days, functional and dysfunctional. As a reminder, I looked up dysfunctional. So a dysfunctional family is a family that does not operate normally or properly. See, and you laugh, right? Because a lot of you know you come from dysfunctional families. That was not normal. That is not normal. He is not normal. She is not normal. That uncle is not normal. What my aunt did at that Thanksgiving, was not proper. (laughs) We have these stories, right? Think of the names that you would not put in your genealogy. The people that you would not list. Many of us, many of us come from dysfunctional families. The Son of Man came from a dysfunctional family. Some of you have committed terrible sins. You've done terrible things. You've thought terrible things. You've said terrible things. You've done terrible things. Some of you have done terrible things and and no one knows. Except you and God. There are many people in this genealogy who committed terrible sins. We talked about some of them. It's hard to imagine worse things that could be done. They committed terrible sins, and yet many of them repented and trusted in God and were forgiven. That gives us hope. Some of you have had significant failures in your life. have not succeeded the way that you hoped you would succeed. Have, have, your life has not gone the way you thought it would go. You're not where you want to be today. Not even close. This genealogy is filled with people 
who fail. This means that whoever you are and whatever you have done and wherever you have come from, if you trust and obey Jesus, you can be saved and brought into his family. No matter what. There is no line that you have crossed that has made you unreachable from the grace of God. That line, my friends, does not exist. As Isaiah 118 says, he can make you pure as snow. Think about it. This genealogy is filled with people who were from dysfunctional families, who committed terrible sins, who experienced significant failures in their life, and yet they trusted and obeyed God, and they were saved and brought into his family. In other words, you wouldn't be the first. That's reason for hope. Christian, no matter who you are and what you have done and where you've come from, your future in Christ, in heaven, is certain. No matter what. So that's the people. Let's begin to wrap this up by thinking about the promise for a couple minutes. So there's hope to be found as we look at the people in this genealogy. But now think with me about the promise. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. And then we'll look at Genesis chapter 12. Just one verse in each chapter. This genealogy reminds us that God took a long time to fulfill his promise. And we didn't even read all 17 verses. You read this genealogy and you are reminded how many years went by. How many generations went by before God fulfilled his promise that he made in Genesis 3 to the very first human beings to send a rescuer. Genesis 3, you know the story. Adam and Eve send. God came. He spoke with them. There were consequences to their sin. They were cursed because of their sin. Though God did not give them the ultimate consequence that they were, of course, afraid was going to happen. That surely, as he had said, they would die and be separated from him forever. He did kick them out of the garden. He did not kick them out of his heart. He loved them. He gave them families. He clothed them. He continued to be their God, to protect them, to watch out for them. And then he made the best news of all the great promise. And this is the very first place the gospel is preached in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He is talking to Satan, to the dragon. And God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head 
and you shall bruise his heel. God preached the cross in Genesis 3.15. Where Satan would crucify Jesus and bruise his heel. But Jesus will get a headshot. He will bruise your head. He will crush your head. He will win. That's the very first mention of the promise. And then if you were to do a study and read through the Old Testament, you see that that little pinpoint of light and hope just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and God tells them more and more and more. He came to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And in verse 3, he said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be Blessed, And that is because Jesus was going to be born in Abraham's line. So these promises go way, way, way back. And God's people waited and waited and waited for thousands of years. In fact, before Jesus was born, there was an unprecedented 400 years of silence. No prophets, no word from the Lord, nothing. It looked like they had been totally and completely forgotten. You're talking about people who live and die feeling that God has forgotten them and cut them off. No communication from God, no prophets. Parents, and then their kids, and then their grandkids, and then their great-grandkids. Hello, God, hello. You've never gone this dark for this long. And then, at just the right time, an angel was sent by God to tell a young woman that she was about to give birth to the Savior of the world. God may appear slow, but he is always on time. Not your time, (laughs) not my time, but God is always on time. God never leaves his promises unkept. Even when it looks like he is forgotten or left or Lost control, God never has. So have hope. The Christmas story is a reminder. This genealogy and the mention of generation after generation after generation of waiting, waiting, waiting reminds us that God always keeps every one of his promises. Therefore, Christian, have hope. Your future is totally certain. Let me close. I'm going to read the the two verses of one of the hymns that we sang. Come thou long expected Jesus. Only two verses that 
Charles Wesley wrote, and he wrote this as he was longing for Jesus to return after he had toured the city of London and been horrified at how many orphans there were. And he just cried out and wrote this song, Come, Come Jesus. And it's been used ever since as a song that is thankful for and commemorates the first coming of Christ, but then longing for him to return again. So it is the, the song that could be sung before Jesus came the first time, and it is a song that can be sung before Jesus comes back again to judge and reign. So here are the two verses, and then I'll pray. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you, God, that as we celebrate this Advent the arrival of your son, that we don't celebrate something untrue, but true. Father, thank you for sending your son to live, to suffer, to die, and to rise again in the place of sinners like me. So that sinners like me could be reconciled to you. As we sing, as we take this bread and juice together, remind us, we pray, of the sacrifice of your son. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.